uh, we do want to have a conversation uh, about the Olympics. I don't know how into the Olympics you were. At the beginning, I really was. Uh, I watched a lot of the events. And then, to be honest, I, I, I left town last week and just sort of lost interest. Other things were happening. Um, seems like I'm not the only one. The ratings for the Olympics, in the U.S. anyway, we got those numbers. They're down like 45% from Rio in 2016. So the audience just didn't seem to be as engaged as they were before. And I'll be completely honest, I was fully expecting a train wreck of an Olympics based on COVID and then the typhoon and all the rest. But full credit to the organizers, they, they pulled it off. There were really no major disasters at all, uh, quite surprisingly. Uh, and lots of intrigue and lots of stories. That's the great thing about the Olympics. There's always those Olympic moments and those stories, and, you know, Simone Biles and the Canadian women and uh, the soccer team, and the list goes on and on. So lots of good things happen. Let's get uh, a little bit of a post-mortem here on the Olympics. We're going to chat now with Dr. Sherry Bradish, who is an associate professor and the founder and managing director of Future of Sport Lab at Ryerson University. Doc, thanks so much for your time again today. Appreciate it. No problem. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, like I say, I, I, I didn't think the Olympics were going to go off as smoothly as they did. Were you surprised that everything, you know, I mean, by and large, they went off just like any other Olympics would have? Uh, I, I mean, there was incredible disruptions, obviously, in a lot of different ways to unpack. Yeah. Um, but I think on the surface, they happened, right? And they were executed and they happened and and they delivered it. And I think, you know, as as we talked about, um, there's a lot to unpack uh, in terms of, you know, what does this look like moving forward? Right, yeah. And I mean, the pandemic, of course, is an exceptional circumstance. But at the same time, it really showed the IOC is going to go ahead with this despite what else is going on. And, you know, the the people of Japan didn't want it. The government of Japan had issues with it. Athletes had concerns. It really showed the power of the IOC. It, it absolutely did, and I don't think uh, you have to be a specialist in the area to know the IOC is extremely criticized for many things. Many. And, and for many years since the modern day of the Games, uh, they've been criticized for being this big machine and monopoly, really, on the largest multi-sport event in the world. Um, and that's changing a little bit. Uh, and so that's, for us and my colleagues, what we find interesting to look at and kind of think about moving forward. How is it changing? What do you mean? What, do you, what are you noticing? Uh, so our area specifically is sport marketing and sponsorship. And so the games command uh, typically have commanded two weeks of essentially uninterrupted eyeballs in yeah. terms of people watching from home. And that, that then becomes a snowball because those eyeballs are translated to media partnerships, marketing partnerships, and then sponsorship partnerships, all in the billions of dollars. Um, on the presumption, people are watching, people are engaged, people are interested because, you know, when those games are out of cycle, we know the story. People don't always necessarily follow the athletes or those sports. Right. So that being said, with the this decline in um, uh, media numbers, uh, questions around partner engagement and interest. And then when the media numbers go down, the question is, you know, who's watching, who's watching and, and where the advertising dollars well spent. And so they're all kind of, it's a postmortem now, but it's all a question about, uh, is this economic model that sustains the games? Is it going to sustain itself moving forward? And I think the other layer on top of it, just to add, is the next generation 
of uh, consumers aren't watching linear TV, so they're not watching the traditional, typically, CBCs, NBCs. And they're also not necessarily fans of the Olympics the way the previous generations have been. So all of those things pose challenges to really think about and rethink the Olympic movement from a marketing perspective. And then there's lots of other layers of, of games delivery as well to debate as well. Yeah, when you take a look at, um, I mean, it's primarily a made-for-TV event outside of the host country. It's exclusively a made-for-TV event. And right. It's, and it's, and it's right. enormous. Uh, did I see NBC paid $7 billion for the rights? Was it $3 billion, $7 billion? I mean, we're talking about astronomical numbers here. Yeah, no, it was in the billions of dollars, and then that's on the back, of course. They paid, it was estimated $7 billion U.S. to extend um, their rights through 2032. Now, what's interesting about that, of course, is L.A. is on the horizon, yeah. and that undoubtedly was part of the reason, because uh, these numbers, you know, what the other challenge of these games is the time zone was literally, you know, they were peaking when we were sleeping, and so... To get live results has also really impacted these games. But uh, yeah, the the NBC um, paid US seven billion dollars, and then of course on the back of that is all the revenue they got then by selling that ad time to advertisers and marketers. Lots of politics always around the Olympics, and I'm wondering as we look ahead to Beijing here um, in less than a year. You know, with all of the controversy around China right now and whether or not these games should be even in Beijing, does that have an effect on host broadcasters and on potential media sponsors perhaps not wanting to be part of all that controversy? Well, the research that we did during the game definitely indicates that our partners are, spon- are nervous to be engaged in the Olympic movement. On the other, and so I'll just kind of tell you the case that we're seeing. So we know the partners are really nervous about the games because it's the partners, regardless of sport, regardless of what situation is going on, that get the first, uh, they're the lightning rod for why did you invest, you know, from a multitude strategic investments. So um, we know partners are nervous about the Olympic movement moving into Beijing. But on the other hand, as we all know, both uh, organizing committees um, in the case of the Canadian Olympic Committee or the IOC, are really encouraging uh, these partners and marketing marketing partners, in particular, to think about the athlete <clears throat> experience. So, so I share that because that's where we will see um, this all being teased out in terms of what's the best I- interest for the athlete, rightly or wrongly. This is, I think, where the argument is going to sit. So, I mean, like you say, things are changing. Perceptions are changing. There's a lot more hesitancy, I guess, but that runs up against the IOC, being what the IOC is. So do you anticipate things changing? I mean, obviously they have to in some sense, but where do you think that change might come? Less television coverage, less sponsorship, smaller? I mean, what do you think this might look like four years or 20 years from now? I think... um it's, it's been really traditional for a long time, since about 1984, 1985, and the L.A. Olympics. Yeah. I think what we'll see is rethink um, and, and rework some of the non-traditional uh, television and, and viewing um, opportunities for fans. I think we'll also see some more creative partnerships. They've all been locked in for four to eight years, and I think we'll see that uh, look a little bit more flexible and different moving forward. And then, really, I think once, you know, we get out of the, the concerns around Beijing and leading into L.A., 
I, I think LA has the opportunity to be really innovative, um, uh, interesting games because there's so many strong American models that are already being incorporated oh, yeah. there. But in the interim, um, I definitely think they're going to be posed with a question, which quite frankly, they've been thinking about for 10 years, which is where is our next generation fandom and, and how does this work? Um, you know, for the ne- the future of the Olympic games. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned LA and, and you're so right. I mean, you're talking about the media capital of the world, having the games there. We know what happened in 84. I mean, it was enormous. Uh, so yeah. I'm sure the IOC is just holding on to get to L.A., as are a bunch of these broadcasters, knowing that that could be where the whole restart happens. Yeah, I think Paris and L.A. will both be, we'll see a shift in a different direction. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of conversation and context around what's going to happen in Beijing. And there's a whole host of, of of issues that have, you know, have the ability, as you said, about um, Tokyo to boil up and, and how will they affect the, the smooth operation of the game. It's going to be interesting, but, I mean, the competition is. is still the competition, Doc, and it was fun to watch. It, it, it always is. There's always the great stories that come out of the Olympics. It was, and I mean, selfishly, Oh, I think we lost Dr. Bradish there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's the thing about it, right? Um, as much as I was thinking I wouldn't care about it this time and I wouldn't be as wrapped up in it as I have been in years past. It was something that once you get to the level of the competition, when it, when all the other stuff goes away, when all the politics and all the the nonsense that goes around the Olympics, and we all know the corruption and the money and blah, 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 it goes on and on and on. Once you get through all of that and the events start and you start actually watching the competition, there's always something that happens, right? The Simone Biles story was huge. That dominated the news for quite a while, where she pulled back, and that, and that was it. Uh, you know, wow, the, the greatest athlete uh, on Team USA is pulling out. You know, the greatest gymnast of all time is not... That was a huge story. How about the Canadian women's soccer team? If that didn't give you a charge, if that wasn't that something made you feel proud as a Canadian, I don't know. I don't know. Check your pulse. I mean... It was fantastic. It was enor- It was just great. Penny Alexiak. I mean, there's a long list of wonderful, wonderful stories that came out of there. And, you know, I mean, uh, who were who the, the high jumpers? Little Sarah, did you see the high jumpers? I can't remember what countries they were from. I think one was from Qatar and one from the U.S.? I, I didn't watch any of the Olympics. Italy. One was from Italy. I'm not sure where they were from, but this story was awesome. These two guys are competing head-to-head in the high jump over and over and over. That's how it works, right? So they get to this level where they can't Neither of them can get over the bar. So they're stuck. So they go to the judge, and they're, they're the top two, and the judge says, well, you guys got to go to a jump-off. And one of the athletes says, can we have two golds? Can we share it? Judge says, yeah, okay. Share the gold. So these guys both win gold. They fall into each other's arms. I mean, just great stories of sportsmanship, right? There's always stuff like that that comes out of the Olympics that makes you think, yeah, this is still worth it. This is still worth it at some point. You know, it's, it's phenomenal. It's always interesting. There's always great stories that come out of the Olympics.